Wait until you hear this leader chat. This conversation is as relevant as it gets for today's educational leaders. This is the most polarizing time in our era, and high conflict is seriously dominating our day-to-day narrative. Jeff is constantly looking for guests who can help with the challenges the leaders we support are facing. And this podcast hits the nail on the head. Amanda's book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out is exactly what we need to read, or in this case, hear about. Personally, I loved it. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, I'm Jeff Rose, and welcome to Leader Chat today. I will just refresh your memory relative to what this is. Here at Cognia, we have established the Leadership Circle. It is a community, and truly a community, of educational leaders, superintendents, presidents, and their executive teams um, who are here to help one another. And we have a strategy and uh, a particular particular support system to ensure that happens. And one way we do that is to provide content. We provide content in this way through a leader chat. And a leader chat basically is this, conversations with authors, experts, educators in a particular field, in a concept that's really relevant to what our members are working and sometimes struggling through. And now today, Um, These are, by the way, all very focused, pragmatic, and brief because nobody has time. So our focus today is high conflict. And I'm actually, I rarely get nervous like this, but I'm nervous because number one, I'm such a fan of this content, specifically this book and this author. In a minute here, we have the pleasure of introducing Amanda Ripley. Let me Let me read her bio, and then we'll bring Amanda um, here sitting with us. Amanda Ripley is a New York Times bestseller author, an investigative journalist, and a host of the Slate podcast, How To. She spent her career trying to make sense of complicated human mysteries, from how people get out of dysfunctional conflicts, to how countries educate virtually and all of their kids to think for themselves. Amanda's most recent book is High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out published by Simon & Schuster in 2021. Her previous books include The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes, and Why, which was published in 15 countries and turned into a PBS documentary, and The Smartest Kids in the World, and How They Got That Way, a New York Times bestseller, which also turned into a documentary film. For The Atlantic Magazine and other outlets, she has written feature stories on how journalists could do a better job covering controversies in an age of outrage on the least politically prejudiced town in America and on strange history of state law that um, that punishes teenagers for acting like teenagers. Her work also appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Slate, Politico, The Guardian, and the Harvest Business Review, and the Times of London. Her stories helped Time uh, win to win two national magazine awards, Amanda has appeared on ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox News, and NPR. She has spoken at the Pentagon, the Senate, the House of Representatives, the State Department, and the Department of Homeland Security, as well as conferences on leadership, conflict resolution, and education. Let's bring in Amanda. Amanda, how are you? I'm great, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing, doing great. Now, you're coming from Washington, D.C., correct? That's right. Yep. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much. I'm um, 
I've become this, this definitely not a stalker, but a fan. Uh, but I I have spent so much time not just reading uh, your most recent book High of Conflict but going back over and over two sections in fact um, I think what makes me nervous is how we're going to cover material this deep and this uh, vitally important um, in such a short period of time so I just will jump in but let me ask did I miss anything in your bio because I shortened it um, no, that because, was already too long. I, I always, I always feel uncomfortable when people read my bio. So you feel like this? I'm always like, oh god. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I feel the same way, and I, I definitely am usually glad if someone reads it if I'm not on camera because I, I don't know how my my face will <laughs> right. look. What expression? Did you like, hmm. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Anyway, yeah, that was great. Let's dig in. Let's do this. Okay, so first I have to ask you about your motivation. I, I want to know about the motivation behind this book because obviously it was extremely timely and um, I actually think the relevancy has just increased since it's been published. So maybe just tell us about what was the initial why behind the effort. Yeah, you know, like most Americans, I was just totally exhausted by the endless conflicts we seem to be in as a country in politics and social media and the news. So I started out, you know, just looking around the world for examples of people getting out of toxic conflict. A politician in California, an activist in England, a former gang leader in Chicago. And what I learned pretty quickly was that I was asking the wrong question, that it's, it's not actually about getting out of conflict, because conflict is how we get better, right, as an organization, as a country, as a community. We need to be pushed and we need to challenge each other. It's actually, it's all about getting out what's, uh, of what's known as high conflict, right? So high conflict is the kind of conflict we're seeing a lot of today. And that's kind of my main message for anyone watching or listening is, look, this is not normal. And it's not just you. And it's not just the issue. It's what happens when conflict escalates to a point where it takes on a life of its own. Uh, in this state, we behave differently. There's a lot of fascinating research on this. Uh, we make a ton of mistakes about ourselves, each other, and the problem. We literally lose our peripheral vision and get tunnel vision. And the worst part is, in high conflict, it's always the same story. People end up damaging the thing they care most about, whether it's their country or their children or their community. So this is a special category of conflict that becomes conflict for conflict's sake. And that was extremely helpful just to understand that, that distinction. And then to find examples of people, as the people I mentioned, who shifted out of high conflict into good conflict, into healthy conflict. So it's not like they gave up and everybody got along all of a sudden, right? It was that they changed the kind of conflict they were in so that it wasn't so diabolical and, and destructive. Well, let me say to you, as well as the listener, that um, the book is, is very clear relative to the you know, conflict that actually um, helps us, right? And I've often talk, talked to leaders about being comfortable with conflict, but we have reached a very different point um, you know, in terms of what we're currently wrestling with. So I, would, uh, I know exactly what you meant by being exhausted. I bet most people do, right? You know. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a, a paragraph from your book and then launch into a particular question, if that's okay. So hopefully this won't make you blush me reading to you what you wrote. But it's important for the, for the listener to understand. In, in normal life, 
humans make many predictable errors of judgment. In high conflict, we make more. It is possible to feel curious while also feeling outraged, for example. We lose access to the part of our brain, the part that generates wonder. High conflict degrades a full life in exchange for moments of fleeting satisfaction, and the implications are physical, measurable, and punishing. So, and I could go on, but the point being made here, at least as I took it, is this impact when in high conflict, our ability to think critically, creatively, and so forth, which in turn would create this vicious cycle, so to speak. So, um, how would you describe this, this cycle, or maybe our current state, and what led to your initial exhaustion? But clearly, we're all still exhausted and maybe getting more so. Yeah, so what you're seeing now is the way in which people get pulled into high conflict. It's very magnetic, right? So in the book, I follow Gary Friedman, who is one of the leading experts on conflict in the world. He's helped thousands of people through really ugly conflicts, labor conflicts, divorces, you name it. And one of the wisest people I know on, on conflict. He's trained me in mediation, et cetera. Teaches at Harvard, blah, blah, blah. Then he runs for office, for a little tiny political office in his town in Northern California. And as he put it, it took him about an eighth of a second before he got sucked into the vortex of high conflict, despite everything he knows, right? And he actually lost two years of his peace of mind to what looks like from the outside, just really petty nonsense. You know, the, the feuds just seem so inconsequential from afar, but they're not really about the thing they seem to be about. And that's the first thing to know about high conflict is that it's almost never about the thing we talk about endlessly. So if you're stuck in a conflict about masks or vaccines uh, or politics or what, what have you, it's really not about that. It's partly about that. But the more interesting conversation, if you can get to it, is the one about what's underneath it. So what I call the understory of high conflict, which is often about a, a, a sort of yearning to belong. It's about alienation. It's about humiliation. It's about these other things that we never talk about, but we really should talk about. So listening to that, it's, it's almost as though, or at least the way I take it, that high conflict draws us in. And as we get drawn in, what at least what I notice is that people then, it's almost like uh, they generate a particular energy or thought because of who they're drawn into. So this gang mentality, yeah. they become part of a particular group that only fuels the very thing that was unhealthy to begin with. Is that yeah, somewhat it's, accurate? it's a feedback loop. That's exactly right. And it becomes sort of like a perpetual motion machine, right, where it operates on autopilot. And you can see that if you scroll through the headlines on your phone, right? It's very predictable. You almost don't need to read the stories anymore, I find. The headlines, like you, you know what they're going to say. You know what the different sides are going to say. There's a certain... Um, a certain sort of grim predictability to this to this feedback loop. So then it's all about how can I step out of that trap? How can I step out of that vicious cycle? Uh, because the the good thing in a way is that high conflict operates as a system. So it's very interdependent. So you can't control most of that system. You certainly can't control other people. Uh, but if you change your own behavior just a little bit, 
it does have ramifications for that cycle. It, it, it's not going to necessarily stop the problem, right? It's not going to shift everyone into good conflict, but it does have an impact. There was um, a, a quote I, I wrote down. I was listening to an interview that you were doing, um, and it said, you know, the goal is that we could tolerate, this is a direct quote, tolerate disagreeing with some grace and dignity, right? Tolerate disagreement, which, um, as you've described, tends to be something that we're clearly wrestling with. Yeah, and it feels really threatening right now to tolerate disagreement, to listen to people you disagree with, to allow them in. Um, and it feels threatening because, partly because we are in this cycle where we are very reactive, right? Um, and our brains evolve to be very binary in our thinking, us versus them, right? And more to the point, we have created a lot of institutions and cultures that incentivize conflict entrepreneurs and high conflict. So when you design structures, politics, news, social media, to create high conflict, you get high conflict, right? So there's a, a series of things that we've done. Now, the thing is, we could redesign those things. Uh, most of our greatest accomplishments as humans have been in good conflict, not high conflict. So we are equally wired to respond to good conflict where we can tolerate each other's different opinions with grace and dignity and even curiosity, even as we disagree. I've seen it happen. I've seen people make that shift. So it is possible to do that, but we have to be much more intentional about the guardrails and the cultures that we build around all kinds of conflict. Conflict entrepreneurs, you said. <laughs> yeah, it's great. quite a phrase, I'm, I'm, right? I'm adding that to my arsenal. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. So these are people or companies that exploit conflict for their own ends. And, um, you know, I think it's worth noting we all can be conflict entrepreneurs. I know as a journalist, it's a constant temptation. Um, but noticing it, recognizing who is acting as a conflict entrepreneur uh, is the first step <laughs> to liberation, right? Just knowing, oh, that's a thing. And if you start thinking, I bet you everyone can think of... <laughs> Some people they've known who really delight in every twist and turn of a conflict, who seem to create conflict where there was none. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. And I don't mean to demonize people who do this because a lot of them have their own, you know, hardships in their background that lead them to this, often a personality disorder or other things. But the point is, it's important to notice <laughs> conflict entrepreneurs. And if you can, distance yourself from them. And we can talk more about that if you want, but that's that's an important piece. That's one of the triggers of high conflict is the presence of conflict entrepreneurs. Well, this is going to come up again in a, in a question I'm going to ask you later as, as it relates to some of your input or advice for leaders in this particular time and day. There, there is a section um, in the book called The Power of the Binary. I believe it's a chapter, Power of the Binary. And in that, there's this you know, concept that's discussed called overcategorization. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a little piece here too, and then lead into a question. Categories save us time and energy by allowing us to treat individuals the same way so we don't have to look too closely or think too much. And categories also make us feel good about ourselves. But categories blur out important details. They're efficient yet slippery. 
once we have uh, once we have them to contrast with us, we change. We know this from decades of research all over the world. Under the influence of categories, we are less likely to cooperate with the other group and more likely to become hostile. We suddenly adjust to how we think and act in order to better fit categories. So, once again, how would you describe this over-categorization, um, kind of relating to what we're experiencing? And potentially, this is once again that, you know, kind of gang mentality that happens. Yeah. So part of how we design politics with two parties in this country um, is leading to a false dichotomy, right? So you cannot really, I mean, if, we th if we're being honest, you cannot put 75 million people in a basket. Like really, you'll never meet most of those people. You know very little about them and vice versa. And that is what we're all doing, right? And part of that is because we have this two-party system. So in countries that have multiple parties, they tend to have more trust and less polarization. Not always, but there is a way in which multiple parties make it a little harder to collapse your enemy into one camp, right? Into one caricature or stereotype. Um, not impossible, <laughs> but a little harder. So that friction really really matters. And I've noticed in myself, just trying to catch myself, let's talk about education specifically. Um, when I used to cover education for the Atlantic and other places, I often would, I'm not, not proud to admit this, I often would in my mind at least, lump these debates into two camps, right? You had the reformers, the charter school people on the one hand, mm -hmm. and then the traditional union side on the other. And I think if we're being honest, again, we know that actually most people, putting aside the real activists, the extremes, right? Most people are a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this third thing, and then a big part of them is just kind of ambivalent, <laughs> right? Like they're not sure, they're torn. These are complicated questions. So if you're thinking about it that way, I try to catch myself to not even think about it that way, right? And when it comes to masks or vaccines or this or that, reds and blues, don't even think about it that way because I guarantee you, you're missing something. You're missing something. Like there is complexity within those, like it's just humans don't fit neatly into these boxes we've created for them. And the, and it's very, very helpful to just catch yourself doing that. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that. Um, I hadn't really thought of it this way, but recently I was talking with um, a particular leader, a member of ours, and um, I asked him, how are you doing? And I'm always br I'm bracing myself for that answer. Or when I say, how are you doing? And they say, oh, I'm fine. I say, well, you're a liar. How are you really doing? And then usually it's like the floodgates, right? Well, this, this particular leader actually seemed to be doing fine. And I said, how can you be okay? I don't get it because no one else is. And he, he described this. He said, well, I just remind myself that uh, the people that are beating us up every day um, the ones that are getting the attention are just very, very loud. And they mm. tend to be kind of on the extreme side. So I just remind myself mm. every day, most people, most people that are caring for our schools or our children are actually pretty level-headed. They're just not getting a whole lot of play right now. So yeah. I have to go search for them while mm. the others just beat my door down. And it was, right. that, it was that perspective that seemed to help him be a little bit more okay than mm -hmm. others that I tend to discuss. 
Does that make any sense aligned to what you were just describing? Absolutely. And that's a great example. I might have to steal that one. I mean, I feel like I think about this a lot with journalists, too. Like, I always feel like there should be a warning every time you open Twitter that says, reminder, eight out of 10 Americans do not use this service because <laughs> the brain will make assumptions and over categorize, especially on the negative. Right. It starts feeling like everybody feels this one way. It's very hard to calibrate. And again, you could create a version of Twitter that calibrates this for you you know, maybe in the size of the font or the way it's delivered, or there's, there are ways graphically to convey that this is actually a very small, this is not representative of, of the population, <laughs> but that's not what we've done so far. Right? Right. Um, I, I think we'll get there, but right now you have to kind of do that on your own, which is a lot of, which is a lot of extra work. But it reminds me of, I had a superintendent on the How To podcast, if a few weeks ago. And he said, one of the things he had to do was keep reminding the parents that not all teachers who didn't want to reopen schools this spring, not all teachers who didn't want to reopen schools didn't care about kids. Like that's not the same thing. And then he had to remind teachers that when parents want to reopen schools, it doesn't mean they don't care about teachers. So we naturally go into this kind of either or mutually exclusive ideas about each other. And it just takes one leader to point that out, right? And, but the thing is, you have to point it out again and again. But it does help. So whether you're pointing it out to yourself or to your people or to your stakeholders, it does help to kind of prime them, especially in the beginning of a meeting or a talk or a conversation. Start with, okay, I've heard from this group of people who think this. And then there's this other group who think this. Then there's this third group who think this other thing. Then there are people who are kind of torn, you know, who aren't sure what to think. So acknowledging that reality can really set you up for a more open conversation. One, one of our members, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, had this analogy. It was a basketball analogy. His point was, you know, basketball players need to be able to dribble the ball with their head up, right? It's, it's when you're just learning to dribble the ball or you're a toddler that your head is down focusing on hoping the ball makes it back up to your hand. And his point is, as a leader, I'm no longer able to dribble with my head up. My head is down, and I have no idea what's coming anymore because mm. it's so fast and so furious and, um, and has so much, you know, kind of this hostile conflict amidst mm. the day-to-day. -day. He's not even sure what challenge will come, mm. which I thought was also um, actually a fairly um, sad and challenging thing to hear. You and your book have a, have a section um, you know, called Conflict Hacks, um, which is an incredible title. It's perfect. Talk to us a little bit about these, these hacks and maybe just expand upon that a little bit. Yeah, I love that dribbling analogy. So, because it's hard to keep your head up if you feel like you're, there are snakes on the ground, right? Like you have to look down, right? And we are wired to look down in that situation. So then what? Okay. Uh, so, there are a few things that I learned from watching people who made this shift out of high conflict into good conflict, whether they were politicians or people in an ugly divorce, all kinds of conflict shifts. What you see is the first thing they do is they distance themselves from the conflict entrepreneurs in their midst, right? So sometimes that's hard to do, but sometimes it's not that hard. It's cha changing who's, on, who's in the meeting, who's on the Facebook feed, right? Uh, there's other things you can do if you have to work with a conflict entrepreneur, but for now, let's just say try to get some space from the conflict entrepreneur because yeah. space, buying time and space is key 
to being smart in conflict. The more you can slow down the conflict, the better. So Curtis told her the gang leader who shifted out of high conflict in, in Chicago, he literally moved across town, right? Which made a huge difference. He was lucky he could do that, right? But then it just slowed down the reactivity. When, when someone was killed, he couldn't immediately take revenge. He didn't know who had done it. Like this, this is an extreme case, obviously. But the same reasoning applies to any kind of conflict. You want to slow it down so you can access your best thinking self, right? Um, another way to do this is to literally write, uh, journaling can, it sounds really squishy, but it can, I mean, there's a ton of research on this. Writing, if you're really in it, if you're really like in the trenches every night for, or every morning for 10 minutes, you know, write down what's happening in the conflict as if you're a neutral third party who wants the best for everyone. Mm. Just doing that gives you some distance. William Urey, who wrote Getting to Yes, he talks about going to the balcony in his own mind, right? Trying to get some distance, like you're looking down at the conflict from above. Um, and so, so that can be one way to get, to get a little space. And it's not, you know, it's amazing. Just try it once, try it once and see what you notice. See if, if, if anything changes, if you're able to loosen your grip on the conflict a little bit. This, you know, the, the balcony versus dance floor, um, you know, kind of <laughs> analogy is one I use all the time. And I, I, I try now that I'm no longer in that seat. It's much easier said than done. But I, I do tell leaders as often as I can, listen, you're doing nothing but dancing. And when you're dancing, you can't see. Right? You have to get up to the balcony to be able to look over and understand the you know, the, the, the pace and the strategy before you get dragged back on the dance floor, right? Um, and leaders agree. They say, you're right. I just can't. I just don't I love. I love the dance. I hadn't made the dance floor connection, but you're right. That's the opposite, right? Like when you're in it, you yeah. can't see it. Yeah. Um, this yeah. is such a great example. I mean, and I think you and I are both fortunate because we have some space. And that's, that's how we have to try to serve, right? Given the space, because you're not in the hot seat right now. I'm not even on staff in a newspaper right now. Like when you're on, you know, I, I write for places, but I'm on freelance, right? So I, there's huge value in that because I can see things that they can't see and vice versa, right? Because they're in it. But that space gives you a lot of just a precious amount of um, clarity, and peace that's really hard to get when you're in it. So you need people like that. Um, Yuri calls it the third side. You know, in, in the Philippines, they call these people shields. These are people outside of the immediate conflict who can be really helpful in shifting from high conflict to good conflict. Well, the, the dance floor and the balcony, um, that's not mine. I stole that from Ron Heifetz, but, um, okay. but it's, um, it is extremely relevant to exactly how you described it. And what I'm seeing, and I, I have to assume you're seeing the same thing, that all of the politics and the, the conflict and this social unrest is landing in the laps of school district leaders. It's landing in the boardroom. So, you know, you can't storm the Capitol, but you can storm a school board meeting. And it's... It's happening everywhere. So it's almost like the same story with a different twist on the narrative, but it is consistent. It's happening everywhere. Small, medium, large districts, 
you know, the, the lack of civility um, is dominating. It's like the mm -hmm. lid has been let off and it's mm -hmm. become almost acceptable to some to actually no longer be civil. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just causing incredible distress so that people can't look up. They're worried about the snakes, as you described. If you were to have a group of educational leaders around the table, you know, one theme that we say is circles are better than rows. Mm -hmm. But if you were in a circle with other leaders in a discussion, hearing their narratives, what would, how would, you, what would be your just pragmatic advice? This is what I suggest you think about based upon your perch. Yeah, so uh, it breaks my heart listening to what you're saying. And I know it's true, I hear it every day. And I hear it, by the way, from pastors and churches, from local politicians who never signed up to be part of you know, this, this madness, uh, for all kinds, CEOs. Um, so you, you wanna avoid being a target of convenience. That is the key. Right now there is so much, so much anxiety, anger, frustration, some of it legitimate, some of it ginned up on purpose by conflict entrepreneurs. Whatever the case, you can feel it in the air. It's crackling, right? So in that situation, just like you wanna avoid being hit by lightning, you don't wanna be the tallest metal object, right? In that situation. So how do we avoid being a target of convenience? There's a couple of things. One is, and this is what Gary Friedman told the superintendent on the, on the podcast, he said, you need to show them that you're human. Show everyone that you're human. So that is very, it's totally counterintuitive, right? When you're under attack, you wanna put up a wall, be authoritative, look stoic, don't let them see you sweat. Let them see you sweat, right? So you say, I really struggled with this. I'm losing sleep at night. I, you know, you don't want to overstate it, but, but just be honest about the fact that this is hard. There are no right answers. You know, this is really taking a toll on you and your family and your community. And you feel that because as soon as you make yourself human, it becomes a little harder to dehumanize you, right? Yeah. So it needs to be genuine and authentic, but I suspect that it is genuine and authentic that people are losing sleep and, and, in, and really struggling on some level. Um, so, you know, when we first told the superintendent this idea, he said, and this won't surprise you, I don't think he said, ah, I can't say I'm struggling. You know, this is my job and other people are struggling more and the competition of who's struggling the most is, you know, you'll never win. But that, that's slightly different than just being honest. Right. Not you're not saying I'm a victim. Things are the worst. I'm suffering more than anyone. No, you're just being honest about the real struggle that you're in internally as well as externally. And just doing that rehumanizes you and it makes it a little bit harder, creates a little bit of that friction we talked about so that it's a little harder to dismiss you, caricature you. Uh, the lightning has to find another target. Um, and that's another thing you can do is find another target. <laughs> so hold up a very high pole or plant it in the ground far away from you. Now, this is tricky, right? Because you don't want to create a new us versus them narrative. Um, but it does work. If there is something you all can agree is a threat to the community, then that is something to focus on, right? Um, provided you don't dehumanize someone else, obviously, because that's not going to fix that. And you're just repeating the mistake. But if there is a threat, maybe it's, um, maybe it's uh, weather, maybe it's a disaster, maybe it's other things, then that's, or a project you can all work on together. That is, that can be very 
galvanizing and just just channel some of that energy. You know, it's I, I have um, I've led through some tough things in the past, but I acknowledge I've never led through this COVID chaos. Um, so I, I can't pretend to, to know how to do it. I don't think really anyone does. Um, however, I remember at times being scolded in public for a particular reason, you know, as a leader. When the meeting was over and I went introduce myself, shook their hand and talked about their, their child or their issue, often they would end up apologizing to me um, for the way they treated me in public and on camera because they didn't consider me as a human. They considered me as, right, a figure that was there to be yelled at, which maybe wasn't even their intent. They just needed a place to bring their anger and frustration. And so I, th I think it's good advice. If somehow we can humanize ourselves without, like you said, we don't have to become weak and weepy or throw things in a meeting to demonstrate how frustrated we are. But... I think it's really good advice to make sure people know that we too are struggling with this, even as leaders. Right, right. You don't want to be too human, right? right. <laughs> you don't want to start, you know, really saying what you really think about everything. So there's a sweet spot somewhere in there that is just, you know, a little bit of vulnerability will allow other people to show a little bit of vulnerability, but it is counterintuitive. And this is the thing about high conflict. Every intuitive thing you do will backfire. It will yes. make things worse if you haven't noticed, right? <laughs> that is the pattern we see. So you have to do counterintuitive things and you have to do them very carefully. And it helps if you practice it a lot. So find a, a, another superintendent you trust. And if you're going to start trying to step out of the, the high conflict loop, practice that with them. Um, you know, literally role play. I know it sounds really silly, but there's a reason the CIA, most of their training is role playing. Like it does actually help your brain to develop some muscle memory under stress because it's very hard to do these things when you're feeling attacked, right? Unless you've practiced it a lot. Amanda, um, I, you know, I know your time is really valuable. I am so appreciative that you've been willing to come and have this conversation, not necessarily with me, but our members and our overall educational community. And I, um, I, I'm gonna continue to promote um, what is being talked about here because it is so relevant in this book, High Conflict, as well as your others. And just know um, I'm appreciative and I'm a huge fan. And um, how, how, do our, how do our people listening to this, whether it's the podcast or they're, or they're watching this live, how do they follow you? How do they? Oh, so uh, lots of ways. You can find me at amandaripley.com or my Twitter handle, uh, although I've just disparaged Twitter, is at Amanda Ripley. So I, I see the irony. Um, but I do hear from people. I actually met a, a bus driver from Portland, Oregon on Twitter the other day who knows so much about diffusing conflict with strangers. He's like unbelievably wise. And I met him through Twitter. So good things can happen on Twitter <laughs> if we look for them. This person may be your next, your next you know, uh, oh my highlight God. in a book. Right? I've already interviewed him for the podcast. I mean, he's amazing. Bus Driver Dan. If you're on Twitter right now, look for Bus Driver Dan. You won't regret it. Bus Driver Dan. Once again, Amanda, thank you so much. And um, know how much you're appreciated and valued. Thank you, Jeff. I just want to say to everybody going through a lot of conflict. You are not alone. It is not all your fault. It is something that is bigger than all of us, but there's a huge opportunity here, right? 
to, to interrupt some of these cycles. So I have enormous compassion and respect for people who are still working against the grain. We're not succumbing to high conflict right now. I know it can be very lonely. Uh, I've been there and I just want you to know that there is, you, there is, there is amazing future on the other side if we can get through this. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders, educators, um, we appreciate you. Um, and once again, I hope you've enjoyed this leader chat. Um, I have to assume that you have. Be well.